afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 69th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of COVID-19, public health and medicine, and the George Floyd protests with Dr. Peter Chin Hong. You can catch COVID Calls Live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 18th, 2020, there are 8,407,325 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 8,269,774 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 2,174,844 are in the United States, up from 2,150,293 yesterday. There are now a total of 118,057 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 117,423 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Surgeon Known for Separating Conjoined Twins Was Early Coronavirus Victim. This is written by Danielle Renwick and was published in The Guardian, May 21st. When Clarence and Carl Aguirre were born conjoined at the head, physicians in their native Philippines told their mother, Arlene Aguirre, that only one child could survive. The doctors at home told, told me, you have to choose which one is to live, Aguirre told CBS News in 2014. I said, I cannot choose that. Aguirre and her sons flew to New York to meet with Dr. James Goodrich, a renowned pediatric neurosurgeon. Over the course of four grueling surgeries that spanned 2003 and 2004, Goodrich led a team that attempted to separate the boys whose brains refused and who shared major veins. Aguirre wrote that Goodrich gave her the greatest gift of seeing my boys separated and giving them whole new lives. Goodrich himself, however, died in March at age 73, an early U.S. victim of coronavirus. He was best known for separating conjoined twins, a rare and risky procedure, and was directly involved in about 10 cases, advising on dozens more. At the time of his infection, he was continuing to see patients at New York's Montefiore Medical Center, where he had worked for more than 30 years. Dr. Gregory Hauer, a pediatric neurosurgeon at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, said Goodrich helped lay the foundation for how surgeons operate on twins conjoined at the skull. By carefully documenting cases and explaining his methodology, he took it from one odd case that people tried to work on and brought some science to it, he said. Among neurosurgeons, Goodrich was also well known for his innovations regarding conditions affecting the skull. He helped to develop standards for treating craniocentosis, a relatively common condition in which the bones of a child's skull fuse too soon, preventing the brain from growing properly. Before 40 years ago, no one did this surgery, and if they did, they did it poorly, Hauer said. Today, he said, with successful treatment, many children with the condition can make full recoveries. 
Goodrich had a soothing bedside manner, said Camilla Dowling, a nurse practitioner who worked with him for years. Many people, upon first meeting him, would say his presence was so calming that they knew it was the right decision to leave their child in his hands, she said. When Goodrich wasn't performing surgery, he was an avid collector of antique medical books, pre-Columbian medical artifacts, rare watches and fine wines, among other things. He surfed, cultivated bonsai trees, and played the didgeridoo. Goodrich and his wife, Judy, met shortly after he returned from Vietnam, where he served in the Marines. Goodrich had gotten poor grades in high school and only began his undergraduate studies at age 24. He was totally taken by wanting to help children who had facial abnormalities or deformities making their lives better, his wife said. He often stayed in touch with patients and their families years after surgery. Goodrich had seen patients in the clinic in early March, just before flying to Mexico for a family vacation. He soon began to feel ill, and when he returned to New York, he was diagnosed with COVID-19. He was hospitalized on 25th of March and died five days later. The hospital organized an online vigil for Goodrich that lasted two hours and drew participants from around the world. Former patients and their families shared their grief on social media. Aguirre, whose sons turned 18 in April, posted a photo taken of Goodrich and her sons. Her family had remained in the U.S. after the surgeries, settling near Goodrich. I'm devastated, sad, and very angry, she wrote. We lost the greatest person in our lives because of the damn virus. I'd like to turn to our discussion today and introduce my guest, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. Peter is a medical educator who specializes in treating infectious diseases, particularly infections that develop in patients who have suppressed immune systems. He directs the Immunocompromised Host Infectious Diseases Program at the University of California, San Francisco. His research focuses on donor-derived infections in transplant recipients and molecular diagnostics of infectious disease in patients with suppressed immune systems. He earned his undergraduate and medical degrees from Brown University before completing an internal medicine residency and infectious disease fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco, where he is professor of medicine and director of the year-long inquiry program in the School of Medicine. He is also an inquiry advisor to medical students. He was the inaugural holder of the Academy of Medical Educators Endowed Chair for Innovation in Teaching. Peter, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks so much for having me on, Scott. I appreciate you making time. I want to start the way I've been beginning all these calls and just ask you um, how things are right now with COVID-19 and I guess where you're calling in from and how things are with that there. Yeah, so after the initial uh, uniformity of California's response, where we had the whole state essentially being shelter in place, what we're finding now is a patchwork response of reopening. So uh, many places have uh, sort of proceeded on with reopening. In the Bay Area where I'm at, in the San Francisco Bay Area, it's been a little bit more conservative. So right now, for example, we've just started outdoor dining, whereas many parts of the states are doing indoor dining already. We have we can't go to barbers or uh, hairdressers as yet. So I think um, that's interesting just because I, I think people, you know, kind of have to look up what to do in different areas. I think on a very local hospital level, we haven't seen any decline, as much decline in cases as the community prevalence suggests. Uh, we're still seeing sick patients, probably about I would say 20 patients or so in our hospital system, but uh, at any one time with COVID. But I would say that's much less than other parts of the country. Of course, we know in the United States, the epidemic is 
particularly raging in Southern California and the Sun Belt of Arizona, Texas, Florida. And you've been seeing patients with COVID-19 since March? Yeah, I've been here actually since I was trying to talk to some friends recently and realized I was involved since Wuhan days because we are starting to prepare the hospital system. And, you know, again, for that surge that we were fearing of people coming in. And so we are thinking, you know, should we split the vents into four people? You know, Mm -hmm. do we have enough rooms? What about training? Apart from the education, a lot of education I had to do for staff, faculty, community, which was very telling because I think, um, and we may get to this later on, the CDC has not had a a very strong voice in this pandemic as opposed to the other uh, pandemics or epidemics we've had before, like swine flu most recently in uh, uh, 2009. So because of that, I think many of us, in particularly in infectious diseases, have had to do particularly more uh, in the way of educating and reassurance of the people around us. Well, we want to talk about COVID-19 in depth, and we also want to bring that into the same frame as the George Floyd murder. And I want to just start off also asking you what the situation has been there regarding the protests. So I think there continues to be robust uh, protesting on on many fronts by the community. Um, I think the next big sort of bolus is going to be on Juneteenth, where a lot of university uh, sort of meetings and town halls have been canceled in in honor of of Juneteenth. And there is uh, correspondingly uh, planning or being planned another, you know, large gathering of folks to get together. Let me um, maybe just we can start out getting a little bit of background about about you. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about your your pathway into medicine and what kinds of questions really, you know, you are interested in in medicine? What inspires you to do the work you do? Yeah, so I have a very unique history. I'm I'm originally from the Caribbean. I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, the most southerly isle, right next to Venezuela. What is, was a British colony uh, from 1797, and so we all grew up in the English system of education. And I grew up in a remote village, not far from where Christopher Columbus landed. It actually was a African American village that was um, derived from descendants of slaves who fought for the British in the American Civil War. So when the British lost, the British said, okay, we will take you and give you free land in possessions that we have. So in my particular village, it was one of several companies of American uh, slaves who were not freed by the British, who had fought on the British side. So I grew up in that context. And we grew up in a village store. My dad was kind of like the part of the village. And he provided a lot of free things and was very humane, and my mom as well. So I grew up in that context of helping people and helping the underdog in particular. So like we would give folks uh, free groceries when they couldn't have the money at the time. We would deliver the, everything for free. He'd teach them to write. He'd hold ca- carnivals. I mean, lots of 360-type stuff. So <clears throat> I eventually got to a, the right school, I guess, which is in the city after um, – uh, relatives said I should go somewhere to another school, and that was the pathway to get to the United States. But that lens of sort of social justice, which I had from very young, instilled in me by my by my parents, uh, kind of led me through. And then during undergrad and medical school in in at Brown, I was drawn to things that really had, you know, social dimensions. So you know, I worked in the prisons. I uh, 
was drawn to the HIV epidemic, mainly because it affected a lot of people who couldn't speak for themselves. And that interest drew me to San Francisco to do residency. And that's how I landed up in at UCSF because I was really impressed when I was visiting. Actually, I was visiting a friend of mine who went to high school with me from the Caribbean who had started working for Oracle. I stayed with him in the mission. I ate a burrito every day. And I was like, this place is for me. I mean, it was like so multicultural. It seemed too good to be true. And then the medical culture was also very similar. So I think I was drawn to all those things. I was lucky to get into to the training program. And then there you have me. I mean, it's kind of like shaped me to, to who I am today. Oh, thank you for sharing. What a remarkable pathway. And, and we were just chatting before we started the call today. Um, yesterday, I was talking with Monica Sanders and Felicia Henry, and we were talking about what sometimes is the tension between activism and professionalism. I think it's a fake dichotomy and maybe one we should push back on, but it sounds like you also are a person who really comes from strong social commitments and then found your way into, into medical practice. And like we were saying, Scott, I think before the Floyd protests, I had sort of my social activism sort of roots and interests. And then I had my biology and infectious diseases. So I was talking to about COVID on one to one group of people. And then I was talking about, you know, Asian hate crimes. And I was talking about um, getting enough PPE for providers and having, you know, inspiring the medical students to do drives and <clears throat> talking about distribution of remdesivir fairly by the government. And then with the Floyd protests, they all sort of collided. So in a sense, it was very satisfying because here was the activism that was squarely in line with, you know, my COVID knowledge. And I, I could sort of like tap into both those things together. So I have been quite reluctant in these months since starting COVID calls to, to ask medical clinicians to come in and have conversation. Um, and so that's been a perspective that's been, and we've had many great conversations in COVID calls. I've learned a ton, but I've been a little restrained with that. And it's interesting now after the George Floyd murder, it's, we seem to have, obviously, we've passed a national inflection point, but also just what you described, that there are more clinicians who seem to be visible and available now for discussion. And, and maybe also we're seeing a point at which, in some states at least, it's, it's not as pressing as it had been, which isn't to say it's good at all. Um, but So I'm thrilled to talk to you today with the vantage point that you bring and I, I want to start with a kind of a general question from your perspective um, about this pandemic and, and what it has revealed to you about CDC, about health and human services in the United States, um, fracture points, but also maybe strengths that have emerged in the way the medical system works in the United States. Can you give us kind of a, an overview of the way you're looking at it? Well, maybe I can start with the good, and then we can talk about the bad, and then maybe the ugly, too. But the good is that, I mean, we do have a highly respected CDC. I mean, they're full of like super smart people. I rely on them every day to take care of my complex patients in San Francisco. For example, if I had a weird parasitic infection, uh, I would call my CDC colleagues and they would help me sort of like construct the right medicine. They would actually give me sometimes the medicines if it wasn't available, uh, you know, FDA cleared and guide me through the diagnostics and follow up patients. So like, amazing group of people, widely respected all over the world. 
Um, I would say that other parts of the U.S. that uh, really are amazing are the, the funding of the National Institutes of Health, which can support some of the investigational trials for COVID, like Remdesivir that people have talked about, the infrastructure and the sort of oversight over study protocol. So when a study is designed and it's executed, you know that uh, it's undergoing a lot of oversight by really smart and dedicated people. Um, and um, But I, I think with the good also comes the not so good. And I think even sticking with the NIH trials and uh, you know all that oversight, I think what that leaves out is oftentimes it biases towards uh, top tier academic institutions, uh, not community hospitals that don't have the investigational pharmacy have to, uh, you know, sort of uh, regulatory heft that can get you uh, to carry out one of these studies. And in the time or disease like COVID, where we don't have any FDA approved drugs, what it means is that many people who are not one of these sites or not close to a hospital that has the luxury of having these drugs uh, would sort of get left out. And of course, I've been concerned about, you know, brown and black colleagues and patients around the country. And so that's one consideration of the not so good. The other not so good is that I think we still have a problem in medicine and in healthcare with diversity and unrepresented minorities. So the people who are actually running the sites, even if you are, you know, a minority patient going to one of these name brand institutions, uh, the more chances are not the person running the study is not um doesn't look like you. So what it means is that even though the study has been designed, you may not try as hard to recruit certain types of patients, or you may be more discouraged, or you may not understand that cultural context that the patient brings. And of course, you know, some of the ugly parts that of the society that COVID also highlighted, you know, not even talking about the George Floyd protests and that lens is sort of the interplay between politics and health, which I think has sort of made many of us frustrated and uh, frightened and anxious and in ways of distributing, you know, mass or even when we got the donation for the remdesivir from Gilead, the distribution plan was sort of delayed and botched a little bit. And so some of us actually got up and like publicized this. And I think that's when uh, Dr. Burks was hired to oversee that whole distribution of donated drug. And then other things that it's highlighted is that, you know, masks have been a very politicized uh, item now. And to us in medicine, it just seems so weird because, you know, we use masks all the time in healthcare. You know, when somebody has tuberculosis, we put a mask on them so they don't transmit it to others. But to think of masks as a, as a metaphor for freedom or for what political standing you have seems really, um, you know, uh, not consistent with how we want to promote health to the community. So I think all of those things, uh, there's great stuff, but there's also not so great stuff. And because it, health, COVID has been so politicized, that means that different parts of the country respond in different ways. So we're not like one organism. So I always talk to my medical students, it's like, what is our response been in the United States like? It's like a heart that's not beating in unison. It's kind of like, mm. you call it, you know, there are a lot of different things going on in that heart and like the blood pumping out of the heart isn't quite as good as if the heart just beat all together. Mm. That's an amazing metaphor, sort of irregular heartbeat of American medicine in this moment. One of my 
earlier guest, Malka Older, who's a novelist and a scholar, she she talked about the time aspects of that. She called it Corona lag, which I think is another sort of interesting way to think about how we do seem to be out of phase across the country. Well, let me stick with that for a second, because in the context of San Francisco, I had spoken with a colleague earlier who she said she thought Philadelphia at the municipal level may have done um, better than might have otherwise been expected in part because of long legacy of dealing with AIDS crisis, for example, in Philadelphia. So there is this sort of strong institutional identity of a local public health system. Do you, is that resonate in San Francisco? Totally. I mean, San Francisco, I mean, AIDS was the reason why I moved there for training in the first place. And there's this huge legacy of AIDS activism, ACT UP. Um, you know, I was even looking at the documentary on Amistad Morpin the other day, and so much of his writing was even shaped by the AIDS epidemic. So speaking to the conversation we had earlier about, um, you know, what's the sequence? Should you be an activist in medicine or not? And maybe you should be an activist then going to medicine. Actually, some of my close colleagues in infectious disease were active activists themselves before going into medicine. So mm-hmm. they came to medicine a little bit uh, later, they were more, more mature, they were more grounded. And I really looked to those people when I was training as beacons of the kind of physician I wanted to be. So to cut a long story short, there is a huge history of activism. There are many parallels between AIDS and COVID, both from governmental response, the sense of other, etc. So I think we can learn a lot from AIDS. We've been looking at influenza 1918 epidemic, but I think Looking at AIDS as well in terms of activism gives us a nice uh, playbook in terms of how we can navigate the next set of challenges that we face as a nation. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today with Peter Chin Hong about medicine and public health, COVID-19, and George Floyd, which we're going to turn to now. And you can get your questions in on YouTube Live. Just put them right into the YouTube Live chat. You can also put them up on Twitter if you want. Just be sure to tag me, at US of Disaster. Or you can email me directly if you want to right now, sgk23 at drexel.edu, and we'll get our question in to this discussion. So, Peter, I want to, since we've been talking about activism in medicine, let's, let's shift over and talk about George Floyd now. I think People who were watching closely before George Floyd's murder, um, there had already been plenty of news coverage, and I don't think this was a surprise maybe to anyone that there were um, under in black and brown communities and prisons in vulnerable populations across the United States, we're starting to see much higher rates of infection um, than others. And then we had this this horrible murder, and then the protests which which have followed, and that was immediately followed by, um, I don't know what to just, let's call it politely a dialogue, but it's also, it's been gotten pretty heated um, about whether or not doctors and public health officials should be condoning protest around systemic racism. So I want to get your, I want to, let's talk about this. I want to get your take on that, you know, because for months, health officials, and many of us have followed this advice, have told us, stay out of crowds. Avoid when you can, shelter in place, keep a distance. And then things seem to have turned. Um, 
I'd like to get your take on it. Totally. And even within that short space of a week since the Floyd protest started, I remember sitting in class, actually our, one of our medical student courses was going on at the same time. The students were very you know, distressed and we were all distressed. We felt kind of helpless. And, um, you know, at first the initial response was, you know, wow, this is going to lead to a lot of COVID transmissions, these protests, because it's the perfect storm of virus still circulating in communities, um, people congregating together, lots of noses and mouths close together, basically, which is perfect for viral transmission. And, you know, economic instability, meaning that, you know, people may not have had resources to then go uh, back home and like access healthcare and all these kinds of things. So perfect storm for bad stuff. I think our initial response was really shaped on what we do in infectious disease all the time and social infectious disease, which is that concept of harm reduction. So, you know, when an injection drug user uses uh, heroin, we don't say don't use drugs like Nancy Reagan did. We say, you know, use drugs safely. Um, this is how you don't get uh, hepatitis C or HIV. You use a clean needle, don't share needles. Here, we even set up needle exchange, even in Vancouver and other places. They have facilities where you can get supervised, uh, you can inject under supervision and with lots of uh, supplies all around. So that idea of harm reduction is not new. So we first had that framework for the Floyd protest. But then it was became obvious that, you know, and people started having this dialogue, as you pointed out, and they were sort of even I remember talking to some CNN colleagues and they had had a staff meeting to sort of discuss our position on this and they weren't really sure. But then when you think about why people are protesting and they're protesting because of structural racism and does structural racism lead to health outcomes? And, mm -hmm. and yes, the answer is yes. People have studied that for decades. There are disparities in cardiovascular health, in lung disease, in mm. hypertension, in cancer. You look for it, you find it. And it's the numbers are in the thousands and thousands every year. And what is the response to structural racism? Do you like just write about it? No, you actually go out and get your voice heard. And that actually, many people believe, is an effective response. So if you think that structural racism leads to poor health, which I think resoundingly everyone in healthcare believes after loads and loads of evidence um, and you believe that police violence leads to poor health not only in deaths but also in terms of days of work, work missed etc so productivity um, and you look and you add up those numbers they're like mm -hmm. in the thousands and thousands of people and actually how many people are actually going to die from covid because of protesting with masks on if we if they do that the, you use the recommendations that we have submitted. Actually, the University of Washington came out with a model recently, and they, you know, suggested that, you know, in the worst case scenario, probably, you know, you might see 50 to 100 or so excess deaths from the protests uh, every day of a, a protest. Of course, it will vary based on the community. But again, that pales in comparison with the outsized impact of uh, racism on healthcare, police violence and healthcare. So that calculus, even when you step back mm. and look at it, suggests that people should go out and have their voices heard. Mm. And there's two, uh, uh, I'm learning a lot right now. So it's sort of two things there I wanna, I wanna go a little bit further with. So the first was 
you described your reaction as one where it wasn't really your role to tell people protest or don't protest, but let's talk about what you need to do if you're going to do it. So obviously still attempting to social distance, I guess, as much as possible, even in the context of the protests. And I know a lot of the marches did try to provide for that as best as possible, use of masks. What other kind of advice were you giving people? So we were looking at three groups of people to give specific advice to. The first was a group of people who might have COVID and they were uh, sort of undiagnosed. What what we think that protesting uh, would do would, uh, you know, you're shouting, you're screaming more, you're projecting the virus further, you're more transmissible. So, uh, you know, you put a mask on and this will get to the recognitions to law enforcement in the third population. So then there's the vast majority of people who are probably not infected. Uh, we do recommend that they, again, put their masks on, carry hand sanitizers, uh, have eye protection. There are a lot of other sort of things like don't wear contacts and, you know, wear goggles if you can or face shields. But also we suggested that they have a group of allies, just like a table at a marathon where people have water and stuff. There's a group of allies that has, you know, extra masks and hand sanitizers and stuff. But perhaps our most, um, you know, our strongest or, or boldest recommendations were for law enforcement where, you know, we suggested that they not only have masks on themselves, the more people wear masks, the better it is for everyone. Uh, but they, you know, if they have suspects, they interview them in the outdoor setting rather than in jail or in a police car mm-hmm. or in the police station because outdoors is better than indoors for the virus. Mm-hmm. We suggested that they allow suspects to leave their mask on and if they want to see their face, provide them with a face shield so at least they can give them protection uh, while interrogating them. But, you know, most, you know, robustly, we uh, were really strong in our condemnation of tear gas, uh, specifically as a way to, because it does promote transmission for those who might be asymptomatic by having people cough. And then for the people who don't have it, you'll be rubbing your eyes and nose and mouth which is like the worst thing you want to do out in the field where you can't really wash your hands properly. And it also, if you think about the mucosa of the lining of the nose and the mouth as the inside skin, you break that up with inflammation from the tear gas, all of a sudden that barrier is gone. And we know from studies actually that people are more than twice as likely to get respiratory viruses if they get tear gas. So that also suggests that they would get COVID as well. So for multiple reasons, I think, you know, and that, of course, took off in the media by itself. So the media coverage actually mm-hmm. evolved with our way of thinking. So in the beginning, it was like, oh, we're going to get a lot more COVID. Oh, let's just stay safe. And then, oh, tear gas is bad. So that's right. how. And then finally, racism is a healthcare issue. So that four themes came in sequence. And if you look at the coverage, that's the way it went. I, I hope you'll tolerate a kind of naive question. But what does tear gas exactly do? Yeah, so tear gas is kind of like... Um, it's not a naive question at all. I sort of like learned more about tear gas through this journey myself. I'm not a lung specialist. I'm not mm-hmm. a toxicology or a criminal justice specialist, but I, you know, it isn't, uh, it refers to a wide group of compounds that has actually been banned, as many people know, by the Geneva Convention for International Warfare. So it seems really ironic or weird that we'd be using it on our own civilians. So what it does is that it's designed to make you cough and and inflame your mucosa areas so that you can you get confused and you 
can't see and you lose uh, orientation and you just disperse. But actually, it's in speaking to some of my criminal justice colleagues, there's actually no great evidence that it's designed to disperse people, uh, that people actually disperse effectively because of tear gas. Um, and that is what sets up all the problem, both for people who didn't know they have COVID, giving more COVID out to people, as well as people who didn't have COVID being more susceptible to COVID. And there's and then, lots of other sort of non-infectious disease badness too, like, you know, asthma exacerbations, um, you know, cataracts, uh, many of these other, and then tear gas candidates can actually uh, implode close to people so they can cause eye injuries as well. And there's a whole group of people looking at rubber pellets as well, which has, you know, less infectious risk, but much more ocular risk from eye injuries. Was that kind of advice given to police departments? And and if so, how was it given? Like local public health departments make this advice available to police departments? I mean, I think it was given in a very interesting way. We didn't, you know, we just focused on the communication, the science and let the people take it off from there. Um, we can talk about other ways in which we were activists, but and maybe this might dovetail into some of that. But uh, I think one of the first promising and rewarding signs for me was that uh, some councilmen or lawmakers from the East Bay and the Bay Area, which is Oakland City, actually went to the mayor uh, with some of the things that we had communicated about the perils of tear gas from a transmission COVID, of COVID perspective and was engaging in a dialogue with her. Um, I think some of the things that we're doing at the legislative level next would probably be the next step with that. And then there was different cities that started to pay attention. For sure, I know about you know, Denver and Portland, Seattle, and then uh, Oakland, like we discussed. And even Governor Newsom, you know, announced, you know, having an inquiry into uh, tear gas and its use in in California. So then the next layer we were sort of talking about is is to, and this is an amazing formulation, really, that um, protest is a form of public health intervention. You didn't say that. I did. But I mean, no, it's but kind it's, of, that's how I heard it. Totally. That, that is and that's that is exactly what we believe. Um, and it's a very powerful public health intervention when, you know, we've been talking about things for decades. I mean, I've been talking about inequity since I started training in medicine. Even before that, in undergrad, we were talking about uh, inequities in American healthcare, And it seems that we've been talking and talking and talking and not enough doing. And I feel that the African-American community now is just challenging the rest of us to not just talk about it, but actually do something. So this is the part of doing that I hope uh, with ushering a new level of physician activism. The backlash, as I saw it, as I read it, was um, kind of on the order of, hey, doctors, stay in your lane. Um, we'll take your advice on on certain things, but you can't tell us that we should stay in our houses and then we should come out so that somehow there was a certain group of Americans, maybe they were predisposed to hear that in a certain way or frame this in a certain way. But what, what did you think of that backlash when it was when it was emerging? It wasn't surprising because there's been, as the epidemic progressed in the U.S. or the pandemic, if you think about the world, it's what you found happening. Of course, there were always the naysayers in the beginning, the people who thought it was a hoax, and et cetera. But then most of the people actually obeyed shelter in place. People were really good for a long time, and then people got frustrated. I mean, that we saw that in the 1918 influenza epidemic as well, as Spanish flu. 
where people did all the good stuff and then they had mass parties and they threw away their masks. So it wasn't surprising. It's human behavior. Everyone's lonely. Grandparents haven't seen their grandkids. People have lost jobs. People are desperate. And I, I totally empathize with everyone. So what I saw in that second phase was a polarization between public health and sort of like your general person. So like there was public health was in the strictest public health. People was like, no, there's still a lot of disease. You should stay home. Reopening is way too soon. And people were like, you can tell me what you want, but I can't wait for Disneyland to open up. I can't wait to like run on the, you know, go to the beach. And I didn't even know anybody who had COVID. So all those things were in making these two people uh, populations like further away from each other after they were unified originally. In fact, in Orange mm-hmm. County and some and Santa Clara recently in California, public health officials have been threatened with their life uh, by some people in, 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 in the public. And in fact, the top public health official in Orange County, where Disneyland sits, uh, resigned because they were trying to institute something simple as community masking. And people were so outraged that they had all this hate mail and then that person was forced to resign. So again, there was this polarization. And then that was the context in which the Floyd protests and our recommendations happened. So it wasn't surprising. So again, my whole philosophy is not to be tell people, don't do this, don't do that. It's to like meet people where they are and educate them. And, you know, if we have enough contact tracing and testing in the community, we, the, the data will speak for itself and then people will know what is the balance in which the lives lost and the ICU beds exceeds my comfort level as a, mm-hmm. as a citizen. And, you know, I, you know, we wait for that to happen in the absence of sort of like, you know, uh, leadership from any one voice, which has been very, very confusing, as you know, during the whole federal response to the COVID pandemic. You're describing, if I'm hearing you right, a situation then where there could come a point if the protests continue that in your medical opinion, you'd say now the risks outweigh the good that could be done for public health more broadly by having the protest. Is that? I mean, it's not only the protest, but it would be um, what's the result of reopening because reopening right. is happening at the same time as the protest. Right. And because you're in a protest with a bunch of people you don't know, it's hard to do contact tracing, meaning that it's hard to really use the protest as the way in which you got COVID. I see. But, you know, there will be sort of like, in communities where there were less, there was less reopening, like in the Bay Area, for example, we were still more restrictive during many of those protests. So if there was an uptick, it would be probably linked to the protests. Whereas in many places where things were happening simultaneously, it would be really hard to disentangle protests from, from opening that restaurant, dining, or going to church uh, with more than 100 people, et cetera. I haven't seen this news story yet, or I haven't seen this line yet from uh, maybe a, a more conservative commentator, but I'm anticipating it won't be long before somebody will say, oh, we had a spike in cases in this place, and it's a result of these protests, and the doctor said it was fine. No, yeah. I mean, one other dimension I would say of the protests, at least in the Bay Area, it's, first of all, it depends on the community you're protesting in, but right now, the there are about 60 to 70% of protesters who are wearing masks, as opposed to the mm. social media pictures of Las Vegas. That's, yeah, that's yeah. not widely known, I don't think. Yeah, I think in Las Vegas, nobody's wearing a mask. And I'm really more worried about Las Vegas than any one protest anywhere, particularly if like 60 to 70% of people are wearing masks. Mm. 
So we have to talk about it at least briefly that um, Saturday there'll be this rally in, in Tulsa. And President Trump is very eager because this is the way he likes to, to speak. He likes these big meetings. Um, and that's going to be signal part of his campaign, as he's made clear. Uh, Oklahoma is also going through a spike in its in its number of cases. This potentially, well, I guess I want to know how you how you think about that. Does this challenge you also as a person who wants to talk about mm, public assembly, maybe protest speech, but also balancing public health on the other side? It, it's completely different to me because it's not it's not responding to a crisis. I mean. There's no crisis in having your voice heard politically. I think the American people have spoken loud and clear in many forums throughout. There is a crisis in racism and health outcomes. There is a crisis in police violence and health. So to me, it's very, very different. It's like almost the same conversations I had lots of people early on about why we can't have fans in football stadiums easily, uh, why we can't open up sports easily, why we can't have rock concerts you have like a group of people close together, congregate setting, they're very emotional, they're shouting. Probably in that rally, I would, again, thinking about the politicization of masks, there probably wouldn't be a lot of people wearing masks, I would imagine, or uh, a sizable people, a proportion of people not wearing masks. They're shouting, they're being emotional, maybe throw some alcohol in there and uh, and you lose inhibitions. And I, I would worry that uh, that would be a tinderbox again. But in my approach of harm reduction, I'm not going to, again, I'd be worried about it or anxious, but I would try to educate people to wear masks and to protect themselves and to the the people next to them. But as you know, there are many people who are not wearing masks. So I Mm -hmm. think that's the part that worries me. Mm -hmm. And in your judgment, are there some states where those kinds of rallies just should not be taking place? Or is it always possible that people could use some measures, masks, or um, reducing the number of people in the stadium where it could could be done? I guess I'm, I'm not trying to make you into an absolutist no, no, one totally way or the other, not. but I am fascinated how you make yeah. these decisions. They're very challenging. I mean, it's challenging. Uh, you know, it's, it's complex. And I think if you think about something that's less political, say that, where would you have the NBA finals? So, um, you could set up an NBA final where people are spaced apart. You do like lots of screening, you know, who's who. So if there's an outbreak, you can trace the contacts. Uh, so you can do it responsibly. So I just don't know what they're going to do in this political rally uh, in Oklahoma. And I would worry that they don't have all of these, these uh, precautions in place and therefore it would lead to, you know, bad outcomes later on. Um, I, you know, so I, I think that's, that's part of my, you know, questions about, about how it's conducted, because of, of course you can do and design something that's, that's, uh, reducing risk, particularly, I mean, the simplest thing as we get more and more evidence, is just like the simple aspect of wearing masks. Actually, I, one of my pet peeves for the public health recommendations early on is it's just, it seemed like a laundry list. So I think people missed the forest or the trees, so they were trying to do everything, you know, wear a mask or social distance or, like, clean your iPhone every 10 minutes and, like, use bleach, like, (laughs) and then people wiping down groceries, and then you, like, got fatigued. But I think people missed the whole main thing, which is to protect your nose and mouth. So if you can, like, wear a mask, it's like, well, 
you know, you can think about the other stuff, but like I personally don't clean my iPhone uh, every 10 seconds and I, I never clean my groceries. And um, I, I think that people got confused with this multitude laundry list of recommendations. So at the end of the day, it's just the three W's. You wear a mask, you wash your hands and you watch your distance. But if you had to choose one thing, I choose wearing a mask, which gets back to that way you can be safe in a setting if you really want to have it is to like make sure everyone wears a mask. I mean, when I go to the farmer's market in California, they won't even let me in if I'm not wearing a mask. When I go mm. to a grocery store, they don't let me in. I just hope that they think about that as well during the political rally. I want to just underline the three W's here. Let's make sure that's really useful. So yeah. wear a mask. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. And watch your distance. Watch your distance. It's been, um, I remember early on in March, there was some uncertainty about the mask recommendation. And maybe not with you, but in other, and even here where I am in New Jersey, I was getting on a train to go to work. It was actually the last day I went to work, um, last time I've been on campus. And I had the mask. I was the only person on the train who had it. And I texted my brother. And he said, you don't wear a mask. You're not supposed to wear a mask. And, of course, the chastisement from your brother is all it takes. And I took it I off and put it, <laughs> put it in my bag, you know. Um, it's, and so once something gets stuck in people's mind, it's, it's hard to put them in a different direction, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, masks are seen as other, you know, early, you know, Asians, for example, always wore masks for, for lots of things, uh, right or not right. And I think people had this sense of masks as other. And I think now we have more and more evidence that masks actually work as a public health intervention. When you look at countries where community masking is prevalent, like Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, South Korea, they're still crowding. And, you know, you look at these pictures, but everybody's wearing masks, but their disease prevalence is very, very low. I want to remind people that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Peter Chin Hong. And Peter, I wanted to just talk with you a little bit more about George Floyd and I still am stunned um, the, the, by the fact that he had a COVID-19 uh, diagnosis. That point to me is, is when, we, when we think about this, if we want to communicate about what's happening in America right now, it seems to me that's just the headline. Um, totally. I mean, the disproportionate or outsized impact of COVID and our you know, minority populations. I think it speaks to exactly why people are protesting for George Floyd is that people can't access healthcare. They don't have even diagnostics. I mean, or to even get a test. I think sometimes you have to have an app. And this, I think in New Jersey, I was hearing from some of my patients that you need an app to get a lot of testing. And a lot of people don't have that or they don't know what to do. There is like the whole idea of like um, testing sites being very far from uh, populations uh, that are vulnerable to access via public transportation. There's a whole partnership between public and private for testing in some areas where like Walgreens or CVS would partner in public health. But of course that motivation for getting a test is very different um, mm -hmm. if that partnership is there, not willingly probably. And then um, lots of disparities in, in testing, but some communities have responded by doing targeted testing in vulnerable populations like in various cities around the country. Then there's the problem of access to healthcare Lots of stories of people being turned away from the ED during uh, COVID who have minority populations. Uh, and we talked about the access to investigational drugs. Even when you are hospitalized, you're probably going to be in a community hospital 
that wouldn't be one of these sites to get access to the to the drugs that we are studying to treat COVID. So multiple issues all along the way, and then comorbidities. Like we said, more heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, and these are the things that we know would make people progress faster and do worse once you got COVID. So multiple dimensions. Um, that I think George Floyd's COVID diagnosis really illustrates. That point you were making there, I, I had a chance to talk with Danny Ritchie, um, who's in Providence, and also Nick John Ramos, who's my colleague at Drexel, about that and and the comorbidities and already the stress, the health stress in so many of these African American and Latinx um, communities is is. Again, I mean, I guess the the question I have for you is why are Americans still surprised? by that? Why would people be surprised that the pandemic would manifest itself with a greater death rate in places where people are already vulnerable? And yet that surprise is everywhere I turn. It's a, it's a headline, the New York Times. You know, I mean, it should be reported, but it shouldn't be surprising. Yeah, because I think there's a confusion around what, what structural racism is versus what's SES. So you know, there's a group of people think that maybe if we solve the SES problem, you know, by giving more jobs and things like that, that you would solve the racism problem. But actually you don't because there's studies showing that when you when you, even in richer neighborhoods, that divide still exists between by race, even amongst people with the same similar income level. Um, there is the whole idea of, you know, um, there's a whole mythology about um well, maybe there's something genetic about uh, minority populations that make them uh, progress more. And it's not about, you know, class or, or racism, but actually there's no evidence for that um, as we know it. And um, and I think really it really boils down to that um, that, that thorny issue that I, I think we're talking about now, which is great. I mean, we're using the word racism again. We're using it in medicine. We're using it in medical education uh, right now. In fact, medical students at my institution are lobbying for us to, and many people are, uh, as well around the country, to teach biology, of the biology of race too. So when we talk about heart disease, we talk about how race affects heart disease explicitly, not as a subtext, but as like something right front and center in bold fonts. That's amazing because it's, it's so challenging it takes a lot of patient educating to not have that somehow slip over into some kind of eugenics discussion or some kind of the way people used to talk about, you know, racial disposition, but to, to keep it in that social construct frame and talk about how race is actually understood and lived in America. This is actually a moment I want to pick up a question that came in here from Amy Slayton. And it's getting right to this medical education. She says the U.S. has a very high tolerance for suffering of poor black, brown, elderly and disabled people. Do you think medical practice itself can help redefine well-being as a collective, not an individual matter? No, that's a great question from Amy. And it's, yeah, I mean, there is, sure, there's precedent for looking at community level outcomes. Like, um, you know, even in HIV, you can look at community viral load as a measure of how you're doing as a community. I think it would be great to think about uh, community wellness as well uh, as, a, as a measure. Um, as how well a community is doing. I, I really like that idea. I think it's, people have talked about it. It's hard to operationalize uh, right now, but I think it's possible. Like we operationalize pain 
as the you know the 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 newest vital sign. Of course, that's you know in, in the wake of the sort of like opioid crisis. So I think we can also operationalize community wellness and happiness. Of course, you know the happiest country on the earth always in Scandinavia. I mean that sort of like concept is there already. But why not use it as a measure of health is 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 really a a, a good one I think. And so let's think a little bit about your role as an educator. I mean, you've had student you've been teaching throughout this this period. Yeah, it was very challenging. I mean, we it was we were already challenged by COVID, and then to have the George Floyd is uh, protests and and um, you know that national tragedy and sadness come upon the class too was very very uh, tough for the students. Mm-hmm. It was tough for all of us, but I think particularly hit the students in medicine. I think many of them got disillusioned. They were suffering to, I mean, because again, we've been talking about this in America for who knows how long, and it seems that they're always black deaths, black African-American males being killed. And, uh, you know, it seemed that there needed to be some, something fundamentally done because it was affecting, you know, this racial construct was affecting health. And they were in this profession to, to think about people's health. And all of a sudden, they felt, everyone felt powerless. So I think that came, that sadness came in the middle of our class after, in the context of the whole COVID thing. And everybody was already tired from dealing with COVID and teaching. And then now with this, we really had to like take a deep breath. And, and so what we ended up doing was giving students more time to finish their assessments and their exams mm-hmm. and things like that, allowed them to go and protest. We actually gave, uh, we would give credits if people were um, doing activism and we had a faculty supervisor. So I, I think turning some of these activities into credits for the medical training uh, mm-hmm. was also uh, acknowledgement from the school that these are actually bona fide things that students are doing and we support it and we put a uh, nickel, you know, where our mouth is. Mm-hmm. How have you and your colleagues been taking care of yourselves as clinicians in this time? I think with uh, with difficulty because I feel like on one hand, COVID gave us a lot of, put a lot of mission, you know, gave us mission-driven medicine. And now with uh, the George, George Floyd protests, it adds that mission in bigger fonts and bold and bright lights. So I feel like we can't shy away from this now. This is a moment to continue to support people. But I think what we do in medicine a lot is work in teams and interprofessional teams. So like, you know, physicians, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, um, dentists. Uh, so we, we try to take shifts. So if we can think of it as like, okay, today, this week, I'm going to be on more. And then next week, mm-hmm. I'll ask my colleague to sort of like do some more stuff. That's the way we can take pauses. I think in practice, so operationalizing that is tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but Again, it's something that I think we, we all need to think of because we always talked about COVID as being a marathon, not a sprint. You know, thinking about the impact of race on health is also a marathon, not a sprint. And we need to continue to sustain that energy to move that agenda forward. In the midst of all of that, have you been able to have some discussions about structural racism within medicine or even within yeah, the I mean, clinic? I mean, that's I, tough, I know. Totally. But- Totally. I mean, we've at UCSF, we've had, even before the George Floyd, had this big institutional um, sort of taking stock of ourselves. And we know that, uh, you know, we have these um, anonymous faculty and staff 
climate survey and we knew that there was always these issues even in our own community when we were trying to be so liberal in San Francisco. So there were the dean had put a lot of money to to building, you know, uh, improving the environment on multi multiple levels, including training everyone and, you know, microaggression and all these kinds of things. And then I think with, um, you know, looking at the George Floyd issue, I think what was striking to me, which I didn't even know easily and early on, was that the whole paramedic response to George Floyd really illustrated that there is structural racism within healthcare. So the paramedics allowed George, you know, the the need to be compressed for an additional minute. They never took off his handcuffs. They um, didn't put him on a neck brace. Um, and then they delayed giving him basic life support for a few minutes. So I think even that illustrated mm. what we have to deal with and reckon with in healthcare ourselves. So of course we have to make our house strong before we can help others. But I think this would probably work in parallel with what's going on. And right now, I think a lot of activism, just like in the history of American education is driven by students. We have to be accountable to our students. Well, like usually the most idealistic and less, you know, sort of like um, uh, burnt out people in the, in the environment. And they've been driving us to do a lot of change. And, and I think that that discourse is really healthy. And I always uh, humble and learn a lot from my students in that way. I'm absolutely astounded by students at this time. I mean, and and I've said this before on on COVID calls. I mean, this is a generation that was born around 9/11 and were very young. And Katrina, and they lived through the fiscal crisis, and they've had lockdowns in their schools. And depending on where they're from in the world, they 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 have their own um, violence that they're that they're fleeing. This is a generation that's been. I mean, they've really seen disaster in their lives. And do, do you sense this the, among the students now, this sort of like a, a turn somehow, a feeling that they have to take a, a bit of this in their hand, frustration with us maybe to a certain extent? I, I, I do see, a, I mean, students have always been active uh, in medicine, uh, but I see the scale of activism mm -hmm. at a level I've never seen before with, because it's like mm -hmm. almost pretty much everyone and everyone isn't necessarily out there like shouting in the protests. They're doing a lot of other things as well. And even before the George protests, Floyd protests, students were actually at the front of getting us masks at the hospital when the hospitals were shy, saying they were running out. They were doing community drives for us. They were taking care of our kids uh, while we were taking care of patients. They did a lot of things for us. Uh, and with the Floyd protests and the Floyd and the, the impact of race and health care and police violence, They've been like taking up a notch by demanding things of us, I think in a very polite way, but saying that, you know, we need to we need to fix our house, too, before we engage in it as we engage in this national discourse. So I think many of these things have been driven by students. We need to continue to recruit and train, a, you know, people in medicine who look like the people in the communities that we serve. Right. because. And and that's easier said than done, and that requires a lot of reaching back in education to, you know, grade school and elementary school and mentorship and and sort of like uh, have, have helping people along the way earlier on. So I think all those things are really powerfully driven by students. We're almost up on time, and I know um, Peter. Every hour uh, away from work that you're not resting is probably really a very <laughs> important hour. But I wanted to just get maybe a final sense from you of, of uh, from an expert 
position, where are we going to be 30, 60 days from now? I won't ask you a year, but what should we be looking at over the summer and as the summer ends in terms of na- national trends with this COVID-19? I mean, I think it will probably go down a little bit. Um, we may have spikes, little spikes as people reopen, then maybe people scale back a little bit. But I think the next big spike people are worried about is when schools reopen in the fall. There's a human element, which is schools reopening, of course, kids going back to school. But there's also a biology uh, element to that, which is influenza and respiratory viruses like COVID are probably going to stick around. They'll probably have a seasonal aspect to it. So we're worried that and we expect to see flu plus COVID in the fall, as well as kids going back to school. So you'll see a spike then. And then I, I think along that side, that is the vaccine development, uh, which is going much faster than people think. But it's still probably not going to be realistically here until spring of 2021 at the earliest, even though a lot of people like Moderna in Boston and the Oxford group. And uh, there's a group in Germany that's been front runners. Um, but but I think that's really going to be where um, uh, things um, how things uh, change uh, over time. Of course, there are the elections in November too, which will add another dimension since we already discussed how politicized COVID has been. Right. So I guess the hope is that between now and that uh, wave that may be coming, co- coincident with schools opening, that the health systems in places that have been overtaxed can recover in some ways and, and be ready for that. Yeah. As long as we can have enough beds in the ICU for the people who need them. I think we'll be okay and enough testing and contact tracing where we keep the people who are positive away from the people who are negative. Um, but again, easier said than done requires a lot of training, a lot of money to do that well. So, um, and again, and, and, and sensitivity too. So if you are, you know, somebody who is a, you know, a minority patient and somebody's asking you for con- names and addresses and maybe you're an immigrant, you might be, uh, shy about giving some of that information onto contact tracers. So it has to be done very sensitively. Right. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls and tomorrow, just to make sure everybody knows, um, we're going to be talking to Hannibal B. Johnson from Tulsa. We're going to be talking about the Tulsa massacre. I'm going to also be talking about this rally that's, that's coming up. Um, Peter, Thank you so much for this hour. This really tremendous discussion. I learned a lot talking to you. No, I, and I learned a lot from your questions too. I often find myself pushed by really great questions and it's really nice to sort of like bring in that whole 360 view, which I think you did uh, really amazingly well, Scott. Thank you so much for having me on. Can we get you back sometime later if you ever have another free hour between now yeah. and the fall? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Okay. Well, everybody, you can catch COVID calls Monday through Friday, five o'clock Eastern time on YouTube live. Peter, stay healthy and everybody else as well. And we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on COVID calls. Bye. Thanks so much, Scott. Bye.